listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. We're going to uh, continue this morning through the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6. Chapter 6, moving into uh, Luke's version of uh, Luke's recording of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, there's a longer version in Matthew, and I don't think uh, we have to conclude from that that Jesus gave this, uh, this message once, and Matthew put the full thing in there, and Luke put parts of it in his. Uh, anybody who uh, teaches or preaches or anyone who knows anything about communication knows that the heart of your message is the heart of your message, and it's often given multiple times in multiple forms. We'll be uh, beginning, I think, for the sake of time in verse 20 uh, this morning. But as you're making your way uh, to Luke chapter 6, verse 20, I want to say that, that cultures, all cultures, all the way down to a home or a restaurant or a city uh, or a nation or a people group, uh, a school, a business, all have cultures, all characterized by certain uh, distinctive, certain things. I, as I was watching, went to baccalaureate at North Cobb Christian School this week, and students were uh, getting ready to, to graduate, or maybe it was eighth grade. I'm confused. We did a bunch of stuff this week. But at one of them, things were put up. I think it was eighth grade. One of these uh, slides was put up, and it said, what do you want to do you know, when you become an adult or when you grow up? That's what it was. And there was a flurry of young women who put, be an NFL wife. Be an NFL wife. Be an MLB wife. Be an NFL wife. Be an MLB wife. And I was thinking on the way home, I want to encourage them to go the Major League Baseball route, much less domestic violence um, with Major League players and NFL players. So uh, those, those sports have cultures in them. Uh, when we moved to Georgia, it's always fun. And those of you who have moved different cities, different states, different countries, you know you pick up instantly on things that are cultural. Cultural is what's not seen, but valued, and a lens by which people understand things. We realize very quickly that people in Georgia refer to things geographically by county instead of town. Oh, that's over there in so-and-so county. Oh, you know, we went to whatever, down in whatever county. And we're always like, that doesn't help us know where anything is. Like, where in the county did you actually go? There are places smaller called cities. Um, but it's interesting. So we don't know uh, if that's a Georgia thing, if that's a Southern thing. Uh, we don't know. It's just a, culturally, it's a distinctive here. It was also the first place in the, the states that we've lived in where we encountered a county police department. We're used to counties having sheriff departments, um, but this is the first place we've ever lived where a county had a police department. So that was very interesting, a cultural thing. Also, along with the, the, the county uh, sort of way of referring to everything. I remember sitting at a football game a few weeks back, looking down, and a man was wrapped up in a Cobb County blanket. And I thought, there you are. Um, not, not only is it county distinctive, but some counties are extremely proud of who they are. Cobb County is very proud of being Cobb County. Um, only county I've ever seen in my uh, 40 plus years to have blankets made with their county name on it. But hey, I'm down for that. Don't, don't be insulted. I know some of you have that in your home. Um, snaps for you. I just, it's something I'd never seen before. And I was thinking it's a distinctive. Well, what Jesus does 
What Jesus does in Luke chapter 6 and on, we talked last week about the new community that Christ is building. What it means to be drawn in by the atoning sacrifice of Christ, to hear by the, uh, the efficient call of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' call to come and to follow him and to repent and experience the conversion that only God can bring and come into Christ's new com- a new community means that you're coming into the true community of human beings. You're coming into the community of human beings as God intends human beings to relate to one another and to the world. And Jesus begins laying out the characteristics, the distinctives, if you will, of culture and life in this new and true community. Before I read the passage, I just want to remind you that he starts with four contrasting Beatitudes and woes. Blessed are you in these situations, woe to you in these situations. And I have to say, as he's pointing also not just to true and false followers, but to true and false teachers, for the Pharisees are looking in and listening right now. And Jesus is trying to instruct us on life in this community, what is true. But I do need to say this, these are not ethical standards for nation states. Sometimes I hear people try to enforce this on how nations and countries should believe. These are individual ethical standards. They are not ethical standards for nation states. The Bible does uphold certainly the rule of law. And throughout Scripture, the Bible describes the state as the domain of God given by God by which the rule of law is exercised Order is maintained and social structures are designed for the well-being of its citizens. But what we're about to encounter are individual ethical standards for those of us in the new and true community of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, that define how we relate to one another, how we relate to God, and how we relate to the world. And I'll just say at the front, you're going to see that um, he teaches that, that characteristics of the true community are defined as a right understanding of circumstances and values, a gracious posture toward outsiders and enemies even, and a spirit of introspection toward oneself and honest charity toward others. Let's go back and read. We'll look at this first section and I'll bring those back up. Beginning in verse 20 of Luke chapter 6. Looking at his disciples. And Luke is intentional here. He's using the language of the Pharisees looking at Jesus, watching to see if they can catch him in something. He, Luke is contrasting the spirit and the heart of Jesus, the true teacher, with the spirit and the heart of the Pharisees as false teachers. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you, who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. 
Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. I'm going to flesh this out for you, but, but kingdom reality one here is that kingdom citizens, uh, members of God's true and new community, have a right understanding. We are to have a right understanding of circumstances and values. When you look here, you see two contrasting sets. And if you look at the bottom set, you basically see power, comfort, success, and recognition. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Richness in antiquity and in Jesus' day wasn't about wealth nearly as much as about power. If you were wealthy, you had power. You had leverage. You had resources. You had capabilities that others had. Woe to you who are fed now, for you will go hungry. This is about comfort. This feeding, having enough to eat consistently, being full is a picture of comfort, comfort in the ancient world. Woe to you who laugh now. And this is interesting because uh, this is the sense of gloat. You could easily translate this, woe to you who are gloating now, for you will mourn and weep. What are they gloating about? They're gloating about their success, right? These build on and tie into one another. They're gloating about the fact that they're wealthy and they're well-fed. And they're gloating over those below and behind them. And finally, recognition. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. But that's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. And when you contrast these with those that went before them, that painted the pictures of weakness and sacrifice and grief and exclusion, it brings up a question. Let's look at the first few verses here. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Isn't it interesting that this is, is current tense language? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. This is a picture of weakness, of a picture of wealth, is the idea of power in Jesus' day. Poverty and being poor is a picture of weakness. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. This is a picture of sacrifice. Blessed, for, blessed are you of whom life is asking much right now, and maybe even taking much. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. This is dealing with grief. You're grieving now, but you will laugh. There will be blessings on the other side and even through this season of grief. And the last deals with exclusion, with exclusion. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. He says, rejoice, le rejoice, leap for joy. Now, these don't sound like, uh, Jesus is saying, hey, here's my kingdom. Everybody, you can decide what kingdom you want to be a part of. Mine's defined by weakness, sacrifice, grief, and exclusion. Who's in? Like, uh, better not. I need to talk to my wife about that and pray about it. So I want to break this down. There's a great um, a great single quote by a New Testament scholar named Michael Wilcott in an IVP, InterVarsity Press commentary on this section. 
where Wilcox says this, and it's so incredibly insightful. What will be seen, first of all, in the life of God's people is a remarkable reversal of values. The people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks desirable. And so what what Wilcox is saying here is that Jesus is not saying to seek these things that he starts out with in his list, but to prize them when they come. He's not saying to refuse the four woes ladder in the list, but to suspect them, but to suspect him. He's not saying you seek weakness and suffering and weeping and exclusion, but you do prize what you have, what's come into your life. And he's not saying you refuse power or success, but that you are skeptical of it. You are suspicious of it. You don't give yourself to it. In a sense, Jesus is saying, when you enter into a relationship with me, I create an inner freedom so that power and comfort and success and recognition have no control over you. And when you've experienced this radical internal freedom that Jesus brings, it changes all of your other relationships. It's what creates this this new community with all others who have experienced the same kind of Christ-centered freedom. And how does this how does this prizing and suspecting work itself out? Well, it works itself out like this. Maybe you've got a, a fantastic job. You've provided well for your family. You've risen up. You are a person of significance and importance at work. And then you lose your job. You lose your job. Well, the, the person that doesn't have these internal values... Correct. The person who doesn't have a right understanding of circumstances and of values will be devastated by the loss of this job. Devastated. Because it fractures your identity. It fractures the deepest seat with which uh, you find your worth. But the person who does have a right understanding of circumstances and values, as Jesus teaches here, where we prize what comes into our life because it draws us closer to Christ and we are guaranteed the blessing of God in the pain and the dismay of life. And we suspect and are suspicious of the latter half. We don't give ourselves fully to it. We take careful account of it. We may may be dismayed. We're going to be dismayed. Jesus said, blessed are you who weep now. Jesus isn't saying that when we lose something we treasure and value, whether it's a a spouse or a child or a friend or a, a parent, a job, a direction in life, a dream. He's not saying we're impervious to it. He's saying we're going to weep. We're going to be dismayed. But look at, again, look at the tenses in verse, uh, verse 21. Be blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. You are blessed even as you weep now. It's a paradox. Jesus gives a kind of blessing and blessed state to us as believers that is not dependent upon circumstances. Because how many of you have lived long enough to know that circumstances go up and go down? 
The circumstances come in and out. They go right, right, and left. They're ever-shifting. In fact, it's often during increased times of pain and mourning that we come to know the most about God and experience the deepest blessing of Him, just like it's the darkest night that reveals the brightest lights of the stars. And when you're psychologically and emotionally set free by having a proper understanding of circumstances and values in light of Jesus' kingdom truth, of Jesus' kingdom truth, then you're socially free as well. You're free to love people without competitiveness. You don't have to be better than them. You don't have to get back at them. You don't have to outshine them. You don't have to say something on the side when they're being praised by someone to let them know they're not that perfect. Let me tell you what I know. It's so important. Everything that follows starts here with getting this understanding of circumstances and values right, this internal change. But what's amazing is Jesus says that a second characteristic of us as kingdom citizens of the new and the true community is a gracious posture, a gracious posture toward outsiders and enemies. Toward outsiders and enemies. Let me ask you right now, how do you feel about your enemies? How do you feel right now? What is the posture of your heart toward people that believe differently than you and would ridicule you if they got a chance? Maybe even other Christ followers feel like you're so off theologically and you're so wrong. How do you feel about people in your life right now that you know wish you ill? This morning, right now. They wish you ill. And if they could somehow orchestrate that without getting themselves in trouble, they absolutely would. How do you feel, not just about outsiders, but about enemies? Our world is obsessed, at least Western culture is, uh, with tolerance in an almost childish way. Some of the most intolerant people in, wor- in the world are the most vocal tolerance, uh, vocal proponents of tolerance. What they mean is, believe what I believe, or else. But real tolerance is this, it's how you treat people who don't share your values and beliefs. And that's a defining characteristic of a community. How does a new and true community that gets circumstances and values right, has a right understanding of that, how is it that we treat people who don't have that same understanding, and even beyond that, who just like us and hate us? Well, Jesus goes further than just outsiders or people that don't share our values. Let's, let's, spend, let's spend the next few minutes talking about enemies. Let's talk about people who don't like you and want to ruin you. How many of you have ever had anyone in your life that you knew did not like you and would like to ruin you? Anyone? Everyone but Bethy. I'm just kidding. I don't even know where Bethy is or if she's in the room. Yeah. Most of us have certainly experienced this. Let me read the next passage and then I'll tell you Jesus tells us in some to do two things regarding this. But to you who are listening, I say. Now, the assumption here is that some of us can be in Jesus' presence, hearing him and not listening to him. Wives, you understand this deeply. 
But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. The golden rule there. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. That doesn't take a lot of exposition there. Jesus means what he means, what he says right here. 35 and 36. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. We'll get to that in a minute. I, I want to read to you a, a bit of this from the message. I think you'll find it helpful when it's verses that you are so familiar with. To you who are ready for the truth, I say this, love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer for that person. If someone slaps you in the face, stand there and take it. If someone grabs your shirt, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. If someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit for tat stuff. Live generously. Live generously. <clears throat> Jesus basically says two things. Let's talk about these briefly. One, he says, pray for them. Pray for your enemies, your enemies. Again, people who dislike you and who wish you ill. This is an inner discipline Jesus is calling us to. And what he's saying is he wants you to drain yourself completely at his feet of any ill will or rancor toward that person. So that by God's grace, you might see that person your enemy as another human being who's in just as much need before God as you are. And you want their flourishing regardless of what they've done to you. Do you see why Jesus knows we need to be in prayer here? Because that's not, that's not the normal reaction, is it? I have another reaction when someone just doesn't let me in a line of traffic when I've clearly got my blinker on and there's space. And they not only don't let me in, they speed up. There's an impulse in me, but I'm not old enough, wealthy enough, or well-insured enough to do it that just wants to run right into the back of them and go, my bad. I'll take the ticket. So I'm older, wealthier, and I've got better insurance, and I just don't care. That felt so good. And those impulses go much deeper and much darker in me. But I'm not the only one. Jesus calls us to pray for them because only in prayer at the foot of God, remembering who we are as sinners entirely in need, 
of the grace and the mercy of God, can we open up the drain and allow all of the ill will and the bitterness and the propensity to take vengeance and payback into our own hands out of us and let God fill it with Christ's size for that person? Miroslav Volf, the great Croatian uh, theologian at, at Yale Divinity School right now, who wrote Exclusion and Embrace, who lived through uh, much of the warfare uh, and brutality in his home country, says, forgiveness founders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and exclude myself from the community of sinners. Jesus forbid, listen to me, church. Jesus forbids us from seeing ourselves as superior to our enemies. He forbids it. This, this passage just ripped me to pieces this week. If I had sought to find a nice passage to preach that would just destroy me personally, I could not have found one that would have done a better job than this. Jesus forbids us from seeing ourselves as superior to our enemies. Have you ever done that? Have you ever felt in your own heart this, the superiority that you sense in yourself to someone you don't like, someone that doesn't like you? Someone who uh, you see as rightly or wrongly having attacked you or wronged you. He commands us, rather, to will their flourishing and good. He says, I want to drain you of all of your ill will, and I want to give you, through the power of my spirit, the grace to sincerely will their good. That's hard stuff. This is what it means to follow Jesus. He says, pray for them. That's an internal discipline. And then he says, do good to them. For that's what love is. He says, love them, but then he breaks it down so that we understand it. Love in action means doing good to them. Verse 27, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That's not two separate commands. That's a command being fleshed out in action. Do good. This is an outer discipline. Now, this takes careful and prayerful thought. Let me ask you this question. Is the best thing for a person who has lied to you and cheated and attacked you and maybe defamed you and oppressed you and whose life shows that to be a pattern in their relationships and in their relationship with you, is, is the good that you're to do to them just to continue to let them doing that, let them continue doing that, is that good for them? Would it be good for their character and their formation and their reputation and their personhood over years for you to just allow that to continue? No. No. That will not lead them to human thriving. So what does it mean to do good to someone who's really, really, really in the wrong? It means, as we said, to drain ourselves through prayer by God's grace of all ill will, all. And this often takes counsel with someone else to help you see that that's been done. And once that's done, to confront them. To confront them. To try and persuade them or at least restrain them. You say, well, that's not what it looks like. Jesus says, you know, if somebody slaps you, turn the other cheek. 
But we live in a different world. We live in a different culture, right? That's why I'm... Yes. That's why I'm always interested when I see a youth event or a wedding or whatever and people are washing each other's feet. I'm like, our feet are clean. I know what you're trying to do, but that was done for a reason in the ancient Near East because their feet were nasty. Maybe you should wash their cars, right? Or their bathtubs. It's a different culture, right? And in a culture where you don't shake hands, but you kiss, hey, and I thank God I didn't grow up in that culture, right? Just the providence of God put me here instead of in a kissing country. But when you grow up in a culture where you don't shake hands, but you kiss and you see someone coming at you as they get closer and you want to demonstrate warmth and acceptance and friendship, you turn the cheek. You turn the cheek. And turning the cheek was a visual, visible, tangible demonstration of friendship and of acceptance. Jesus is saying, whatever they do, you are to turn the cheek of friendship and acceptance. What he's saying is, I I want you to know, and I want you to to regard your enemies as sinners just like you. You don't need to let them continue to sin against you. That's not good for them. That's not good for them. Don't let them continue to harm you, to harm others. But you confront them, you talk with them, you reason with them. But you do so, as one commentator said, without a drop, without a pinch or a hint of a desire to hurt them, embarrass them, belittle them, or humiliate them. Do you understand what it's, a, what it's like to approach someone empowered by prayer and love in that way? This is hard work. Following Jesus is not easy. G.K. Chesterton famously said, most people have not tried Christianity and found it lacking, but found it difficult and left it untried. He's absolutely right on that one. Now, this is not how we usually respond to, to enemies, is it? We usually respond in one of two ways, right? We go after them or we ignore them based on personality, right? How many of you, just let's be honest here. Let's level it. How many of you are go after them personalities? All right, I see you. You don't want to raise them very high. How many of you are just ignore it? I just want to ignore it and go on personalities. See, they're not ashamed to raise their hands. Yeah. Yeah, based on personality, we do one typically or the other and both of those approaches can I just say, are selfish approaches. Both of those approaches are about us. They're about what we're most comfortable with. But I'll say this, you and I have to do the inner work. We have to first have a right understanding of circumstances and values. And then particularly when it comes to dealing with enemies, we have to spend enough time in prayer, sufficient time in prayer, that God has drained us of any ill will and filled us with charity toward that person. And the power to live like this, look at it, verses 35 and 36 again. Jesus says something here, and it's, he's kind of playing a rhetorical word scheme uh, or word game through this section we don't have a lot of time to get into. Um, he's using uh, the term sinners kind of like everybody else does, and that's not usually how Jesus uses it. But he's using it this way to describe people who do things that we think they shouldn't, and we think these people are what's wrong with everything in the world. Look at verse 35, though. 
But you love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Just above that, verse 32, he says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And that's where he's doing this little play with it. Uh, even all the, the nasty people that, that you don't like, they even do that. But what Paul, uh, I don't know, if I, did I just say Paul? What Jesus gets to in verses 35 and 36 is he says that we are simultaneously adopted as children of the most high. Verse 35, and then follows up and says, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Jesus is not saying to the world, he's saying to us. He's saying, we are wicked. We are ungrateful. And God has shown us kindness and adopted us as sons and daughters of the Most High. Therefore, that kind of attitude and posture is to flow from our lives as well. Finally, Jesus teaches us that among other things, as kingdom citizens of his new and true community, we are to have a spirit of introspection, a spirit of introspection toward ourselves and honest charity toward others. Now, what we prefer is to have honest charity toward ourselves and deep introspection toward others, right? I prefer to give myself an abundant amount of grace. I assume the best motives whenever I say or do anything. But when it comes to others, I find them a bit sketchy, right? I want to I really be thoughtful about all that might be wrong in their lives. And this is hard. And God just pushed down in on me. And he used uh, Jake and Sharon with a couple of comments this week to help me see myself for who I can really be and really am at times. Alistair Begg, when talking about this next passage, well, let me read the passage uh, and then I will share that. Verse 37, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student who is not above, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained, will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I want to deal with those last two issues, those parables first, and then we will... Um, We'll begin to wind down looking at this issue of judgment and forgiveness. Um, he tells them this parable about the blind leading the blind, uh, reaching back to the language of the Pharisees watching him, looking at him. And he's saying, be careful who you follow. Be careful who you listen to. Because people who don't know 
the Scriptures and don't know the Christian doctrines and don't know the supremacy of Christ and the centrality of the gospel are blind guides, and they will lead you into destruction. It amazes me, some of the teachers and preachers around our country that people follow, that they just lap up like ignorant sycophants. Everything they say, it's dangerous. And Jesus warns us, he says, kingdom citizens will not be about that. We are men and women who are called to be discerning about the truth. And he says, again, introspection, deal with yourself. And, and the word here about a plank is, is basically like the, the load-bearing beam in a house, usually the largest beam in the home. And if you can picture somebody walking up to you, and they've got this massive load-bearing beam sticking out of their face, and they walk up to you and go, oh, it looks like you've got a little piece of grass in your eye. You should get that out. I can't believe you didn't know that. And you're like, back up, buddy. Man, what are you doing? They're like, what? And yeah, everybody's ducking. Because everyone can see it except the person with the load-bearing beam in your eye. That's why community matters. That's why getting in homes for eight weeks, people, seriously, for eight weeks matters. Where you're close enough to be known, cared for, challenged, and encouraged to make friendships that go beyond there. Because sometimes you can't see the plank. You've been slapping people in the face with it for months. People knocked out, emergency rooms full, and you're just wandering around, big old plank sticking out of your face. Jesus says, take it out. Take it out. And then help your brother. Then help your sister. Be introspective enough by the grace of God before the Spirit of God to be able to be helpful to others in the kingdom of God. Now let's look at verse 37 and verse 38 again. Do not judge. Everybody loves to quote this. Everybody. People that don't give two cents about the rest of Jesus' teaching or Christian ethics or Christian doctrine or redemption, salvation. They love to quote, do not judge. Do not judge or you will be judged. Jesus is certainly not calling us to suspend our critical faculties the ability to live with discernment, with intelligent thoughtfulness when it comes to matters of faith. We know that. You guys are sensible people. Many of you are students of the Bible. You know that in many places in Scripture, we're called to use our critical faculties to discern messages that are true and not true, to discern sin that is leading toward destruction in the life of a friend, and to do that formally in the life of a church. What Jesus is talking about here is what Alistair Begg calls censoriousness censoriousness. It's from our word censor, I-O-U-S-N-E-S-S at the end. Censoriousness, or sometimes we have an attitude of censorious. And it's this, it's a severely critical spirit defined by fault finding, marked by a tendency to find and call attention to errors and flaws. That just wrapped itself around me this week. I was like, oh, God, forgive me. I know this has characterized me for a while now. Sincereousness. It's a word we don't know, but it's a good word to get at the heart of what Jesus is talking about here with not being judgmental and not being condemning. He gives two negatives here. Do not judge, do not condemn. John Stott 
with uh, just surgical clarity in a way that, that almost only Stott could broke this down for us where we can understand what Jesus is getting at here. He says, when we're on the wrong side of this teaching of Jesus, when we're walking in sin in this area of our lives, this is what it looks like. Number one, we put the worst possible construction on other people's motives. Ever done that? Is there anyone in your life that simply because of who they are, you immediately suspect their motives? Stott would say, you're in danger of standing Guilty before God in this area. Two, we pour cold water on their plans and dreams. Part of a sinceous attitude is the ability consistently, almost without thinking about it, to pour cold water on the plans and the dreams of others. And three, we're ungenerous toward them when they make mistakes. We're ungenerous toward them when they make mistakes. That is such a defining characteristic of the critical spirit that Jesus is getting at the heart of here and saying this does not belong in the kingdom of God. So maybe we ought to ask these questions that maybe some of your moms or grandmoms or teachers taught you to ask, is it true, is it kind, is it necessary before you talk? It's just a brief pause before you say something. Because the Bible commands us in the Ten Commandments not to say what's untrue. Proverbs 18.8 tells us not to say what's unkind. Proverbs 11.13 tells us not to speak that which is unnecessary. Can you imagine how much pain and division and brokenness would go undone if we would ask ourselves and listen for the obedient spirit of Christ before we speak? Is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary? And if it is, speak. And if it's not, go eat something. It's what Dallas Willard called practicing the spiritual discipline of not having to have the last word. Can you imagine what your marriage would look like if both of you made a hard run at practicing the spiritual discipline of not having to have the last word? Oh, how much I need Sharon's forgiveness in this area. And if you think I'm joking, feel absolutely free to ask her after the service. Two negatives, do not judge, do not condemn, and one positive, forgive. Forgive. If there is anything that defines the people of God, it is our willingness, our urgency, our graciousness with forgiveness. This, this word is literally a picture of, of releasing in verse 37, it's an act of the will driven by the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God. In other words, it's something we choose to do, to forgive. Do you know how much brokenness in our own nation and violence and shattered homes and shattered marriages and torn apart workplaces and, and, and pathetically unchristlike, ineffective churches are simply the result of of dozens and hundreds and thousands and even millions of people running around unforgiven and unforgiving, carrying the weight and the baggage and the resentment. Where in your life this morning, almost all of us in here, almost all of us, have someone, some area of our life where we need, by an act of will and obedience to God, to forgive someone. 
Alistair Begg said, do you want to know how to stay in a marriage? After 40 years of marriage, he's speaking about this. Forgive, he said. That's it. That's all of it. Everything else is bells and whistles. Husbands, forgive your wives over and over and over and over and over because they need it. Wives, forgive your husbands over and over and over and over and over because they need it. And because we need to give it, God has called us to it. Jesus on the cross gave the ultimate example of what it means to pour out his very life and blood for those still spitting at him, saying, Father, forgive them. You want to know how to stay in a church instead of running to another church every time you don't like a style or a song or a personality or a demeanor or you get in conflict with someone? Forgive. Forgive. Well, they don't deserve it. Well, sister and brother, you don't deserve it from God either. Not one little bit. Yet he does it. And he does it over and over and over and over. So much so that Paul says where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. You forgive. How do you stay in a church as a pastor? You forgive. And you do it over and over and over. I've been so impressed by some of you over the last nearly three years now. Pam, where are you? Here's Pam. Um, I've watched Pam pay a price to stay here. Struggle with no choir. Struggle with not getting the songs that she'd prefer us to sing at Easter. Struggle with whether we will or won't do a Christmas musical and other things that are near and dear to Pam's heart because of both her experience and her gifting. And I've had many, we've had a lot of conversations, haven't we, Pam? By email and in person. And I've watched her fight to stay in a church that she knows is gospel-centered and biblical, is bearing fruit. God is working and moving and bringing people in. But what she would prefer as an American, like we all are, to have this, that, or the other. Lynn, where are you? I know Lynn's here because she played the keyboard. I won't make you stand up, Lynn. I've watched Lynn do the same thing, really around much of the same issue. And I've watched her pray, and I've watched her demonstrate humility and courage and sensitivity and faithfulness. And I've watched her stay instead of run off to some place that has things just like she prefers them. Tony, where you at, Tony? I know where you're sitting. Tony, I have huge respect for Tony. Every time I'm around Tony, my respect for Tony grows. I have found Tony to be a man of his word and a man of integrity. But anytime we start something, Tony, Tim, you're a part of this too. They're again it at the beginning, right? I, I, I aren't until I am. I ain't until I is. But I appreciate that. I'll say more about this next week as we deal with elder stuff. Uh, but as we were making that transition, Tony flat out said with honesty, I'm not for this. Look what we're just starting. So, and then as we begin to look through Scripture and go through the Bible and meditate and pray and work the passage together, we get to the other end. He's like, well, it's hard to argue with the Bible. Like it is. But you know, 
When we live together, we irritate one another, don't we? It requires a lot of forgiveness. Some of you graduates are going to go to college and get a roommate that you swear was manufactured in the depths of hell. And you're going to believe that every time you go into your dorm room and you're there, Satan is laughing hysterically. Because he can't have you, but he can make your life at college miserable, at least for a semester or two. What do you do? You forgive them. If you want to have friends, you forgive them. You stop playing these prepubescent games about who texted you when and who called you when and who included you in this, that, or the other and didn't include you. You grow up. You trust Christ with your life. And you forgive. Tim Keller, great gospel-centered pastor and theologian, scholar, founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, passed away on Friday. The age, I believe, of 73. He'd had a three-year battle with pancreatic cancer, and he'd had an earlier battle with thyroid cancer earlier in his life. But uh, many of us are feeling the tangible, powerful, weighty loss of Keller, who was and has been for several decades a central light for the gospel and for the church of Jesus Christ in our country and beyond. It's been amazing to watch the accolades and the statements of mourning roll in from countries all over the world. Tim Keller, as a pastor and theologian, was able to do uniquely some of what uh, N.T. Wright does uh, academically and scholarly, is able to bridge so many different denominations and groups, all of whom believe they're right, um, but all of whom can't deny the benefit they have from their ministry. He died quietly at home. Family said, after they'd prayed with him several times, he asked him to leave and send Kathy, his wife, in. Kathy came in and kissed him on the head, and he breathed his last. Um, I encourage you to, before you leave, uh, his book, Reason for God, changed my life. I picked it up in 2009. It was published in 2008. We have it for sale in our bookstore. Stop by there and look at it. We also have uh, an intellectual and influence, influential biography. By that, I mean the author just looked at who, who were the influences and the events and the things that shaped uh, Tim Keller's life uh, for sale in the bookstore as well. Phenomenal read. I encourage you to get either one of them. I want to leave you with a couple of quotes from Keller in a book that we don't have out there. I don't know if we have out there or not, but we should. Called Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? It's a great book on forgiveness. He said, forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. In forgiving rather than retaliating, or what we often do is just kind of push it down and store it up, right? Any of you kind of got a master's degree in pushing it down and storing it up for later? Some of you do. You're like, that's right. I'll catch him sleeping. Keller says, in forgiving rather than retaliating, you make a choice to bear the cost. Friends, there's always a cost of forgiveness. Christ says, I call you and command you to bear it because I've borne it for you. That's it. It's no simpler than that. I call you and command you to bear the cost of forgiveness for your spouse, for your friend, for a church member, for an enemy, 
because I bore the cost of your forgiveness. Keller goes on and says, forgiveness is granted often a good while before it is felt. Hear me. You got like two minutes left, so you guys have been good. Stay engaged. Forgiveness is granted often a good while before it is felt, not felt before it is granted. It is a promise to not exalt, to not exact the price of sin from the person who hurt you. It is likely you have always thought, well, I have to feel it before I grant it. I have to start feeling less angry before I start to not hold them liable. After all, that's authentic, isn't it? If you have to wait to feel it before you grant it, you'll never grant it. You'll be in a prison of anger, bitterness, and resentment. This is what real citizenship looks like in the new and true community that God's building in and through Christ Jesus. Let's stand. Just a minute, I'm going to pray for us and our offering ushers are going to make their way to their positions. I hope this morning, if there's someone that you need to forgive, would you just do that? Do that in a moment of prayer before you receive communion if you're going to do that or maybe get the elements and move off to the side and let that be something you bring to the Lord. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness for a spirit that's critical, that's condemning, that knits and picks and pokes and harps and carps, a word I wasn't familiar with but found this week, on those around you, dads on your children, pastors on your people, people on your leaders, wives on your husbands. Be open and honest before the Lord. Let him realign your understanding of circumstances and values and identity in the community of Christ. And those of you who have come prepared this morning to give extra above and beyond camp for cash, you can drop that in the offering bucket. You can give online. You can give by text. All that information should be on the website, should be on the app. So we appreciate your generosity as a church toward our students and thank God for that. Let's pray. Jesus, you've not left it unclear to us about what it means to follow you. God, it's so easy. I confess I know in my own life, it's so easy to get off one degree at a time until we're failing consistently and regularly to exude the kind of spirit that you call and you make available in our lives. So Jesus, I pray now in a collective sense for forgiveness for myself, for others in this room. May we look to you and you alone to know what it means to follow you, what it means to be a child of God. And then with reckless abandon and tenacious pursuit, may we turn our faces and our hearts to you and run hard after you. For it's in your glorious and victorious name I pray. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lmbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.